Book Seven, Chapter Forty Eight of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Seven, Chapter Forty Eight. After the little incident recorded at the end of the preceding chapter, few Flaxmen may be forgiven if, as he walked home along the valley that night towards the farmhouse where he had established himself, he entertained a very comfortable scepticism as to the permanence of that curious contract into which Rose had just forced him. However, he was quite mistaken. Rose's maiden dignity avenged itself abundantly on Hugh Flaxman for the injuries it had received at the hands of Langham. The restraints, the anomalies, the hair-splittings of the situation delighted her ingenuous youth. "'I am free. He is free. We will be friends for six months. Possibly we may not suit one another at all. If we do, then—in the thrill of that then lay, of course, the whole attraction of the position. So that next morning Hugh Flaxman saw the comedy was to be scrupulously kept up. It required a tolerably strong masculine certainty at the bottom of him to enable him to resign himself once more to his part. But he achieved it, and being himself a modern of the moderns, a lover of half-shades and refinements of all sorts, he began very soon to enjoy it and to play it with an increasing cleverness and perfection. How Rose got through Agnes's cross-questioning on the matter, history saith not. Of one thing, however, a conscientious historian may be sure, namely that Agnes succeeded in knowing as much as she wanted to know. Mrs. Laban was a little puzzled by the erratic lines of Mr. Flaxman's journeys. It was, as she said, curious that a man should start on a tour through the lakes from Long Windale. But she took everything naively as it came, and as she was told. Nothing with her ever passed through any changing crucible of thought. It required no planning to elude her. Her mind was like a stretch of wet sand, on which all impressions are equally easy to make and equally fugitive. He liked them all, she supposed, in spite of the comparative scantiness of his later visits to Lerwick Gardens, or he would not have come out of his way to see them. But as nobody suggested anything else to her, her mind worked no further, and she was as easily beguiled after his appearance as before it by the intricacies of some new knitting. Things, of course, might have been different if Mrs. Thornburg had interfered again. But as we know, poor Catherine's sorrows had raised a whole odd host of misgivings in the mind of the vicar's wife. She prowled nervously round Mrs. Laban, filled with contempt for her placidity, but she did not attack her. She spent herself, indeed, on Rose and Agnes, but long practice had made them adepts in the art of baffling her. And when Mr. Flaxman went to tea at the vicarage in their company, in spite of an absorbing desire to get at the truth which caused her to forget a new cap and let fall a plate of tea-cakes, she was obliged to confess crossly to the vicar afterwards that no one could tell what a man like that was after. She supposed his manners were very aristocratic, but for her part she liked plain people. On the last morning of Mr. Flaxman's stay in the valley, he entered the Burwood Drive about eleven o'clock, and Rose came down the steps to meet him. For a moment he flattered himself that her disturbed looks were due to the nearness of their farewells. "'There is something wrong,' he said, softly detaining her hand a moment. So much, at least, was in his right. "'Robert is ill. There's been an accident at Petit Dal. He's been in bed for a week. They hope to get home in a few days. Catherine writes bravely, but she's evidently very low.' Hugh Flaxman's face fell. 
Certain letters he had received from Ellesmere in July had lain heavy on his mind ever since. So pitiful was the half-conscious revelation in them of an incessant physical struggle. An accident. Ellesmere was in no state for accidents. What miserable ill luck! Rose read him Catherine's account. It appeared that on a certain stormy day a swimmer had been observed in difficulties among the rocks skirting the northern side of the Petit Dalle Bay. The old bagneur of the place, owner of the still primitive établissement des bains, without stopping to strip or even to take off his heavy boots, went out to the man in danger with a plank. The man took the plank and was safe. Then to the people watching it became evident that the bagneur himself was in peril. He became unaccountably feeble in the water, and the cry rose that he was sinking. Robert, who happened to be bathing near, ran off to the spot, jumped in, and swam out. By this time the old man had drifted some way. Robert succeeded, however, in bringing him in, and then, amid an excited crowd, headed by the bagneur's wailing family, they carried the unconscious form onto the higher beach. Ellesmere was certain life was not extinct, and sent off for a doctor. Meanwhile, no one seemed to have any common sense, or any knowledge of how to proceed, but himself. For two hours he stayed on the beach, in his dripping bathing clothes, a cold wind blowing, trying every device known to him, rubbing, hot bottles, artificial respiration. In vain. The man was too old and too bloodless. Directly after the doctor arrived, he breathed his last, amid the wild and passionate grief of wife and children. Robert, with a cloak flung about him, still stayed to talk to the doctor, to carry one of the bagneur's sobbing grandchildren to its mother in the village. Then at last Catherine got hold of him, and he submitted to be taken home, shivering and deeply depressed by the failure of his efforts. A violent gastric and lung chill declared itself almost immediately, and for three days he had been anxiously ill. Catherine, miserable, distrusting the local doctor, and not knowing how to get hold of a better one, had never left him night or day. "'I had not the heart to write even to you,' she wrote to her mother. "'I could think of nothing but trying one thing after another. "'Now he has been in bed eight days, and is much better. "'He talks of getting up to-morrow, and declares he must go home next week. "'I have tried to persuade him to stay here another fortnight, "'but the thought of his work distresses him so much that I hardly dare urge it. "'I cannot say how I dread the journey. "'He is not fit for it anyway.' Rose folded up the letter, her face softened to a most womanly gravity. Hugh Flaxman paused a moment outside the door, his hands on his side, considering. "'I shall not go on to Scotland,' he said. "'Mrs. Ellesmere must not be left. I will go off there at once.' In Rose's soberly sweet looks as he left her, Hugh Flaxman saw for an instant, with the stirring of a joy as profound as it was delicate, not the fanciful enchantress of the day before but his wife that was to be. And yet she held him to his bargain. All that his lips touched as he said good-bye was the little bunch of yellow-brow roses she gave him from her belt. Thirty hours later he was descending the long hill from Sassetor to Petit Dau. It was the first of September. A chilly west wind blew up the dust before him and stirred the parched leafage of the valley. He knocked at the door, of which the woodwork was all peeled and blistered by the sun. Catherine herself opened it. "'This is kind, this is like yourself,' she said, after a first stare of amazement when he had explained himself. "'He's in there, much better.' Robert looked up, stupefied, as Hugh Flaxman entered. 
but he sprang up with his old brightness. "'Well, this is friendship. What on earth brings you here, old fellow? Why aren't you in the stubble celebrating St. Partridge?' Hugh Flaxman said what he had to say very shortly, but so as to make Robert's eyes gleam, and to bring his thin hand with a sort of caressing touch upon Flaxman's shoulder. "'I shan't try to thank you. Catherine can, if she likes. How relieved she would be about that bothering journey of ours. However, I am rarely ever so much better. It was very sharp while it lasted, and the doctor no great shakes. But there never was such a woman as my wife. She pulled me through. And now then, sir, just confess yourself a little more plainly.' What brought you and my sister-in-law together? You need not try and persuade me that Long Window is a natural gate of the lakes, or the route intended by heaven from London to Scotland, though I have no doubt you tried that little fiction on them." Hugh Flaxman laughed, and sat down very deliberately. "'I am glad to see that illness has not robbed you of that perspicacity of which you are so remarkable, Elsmere. Well, the day before yesterday I asked your sister Rose to marry me. She—'Go on, man!' cried Robert, exasperated by his pause. "'I don't know how to put it,' said Flaxman calmly. "'For six months we are to be rather more than friends, and a good deal less than fiancés. I am to be allowed to write to her. You may imagine how seductive it is to be one of the worst and laziest letter-writers in the Three Kingdoms, that his fortunes in love should be made to depend on his correspondence. I may scold her, if she gives me occasion. And in six months, as one says to a publisher, the agreement will be open to revision.' Robert stared. "'And you are not engaged?' "'Not as I understand it,' replied Flaxman. Oh, "'Decidedly not,' he added with energy, remembering that very platonic farewell. Robert sat with his hands on his knees, ruminating. "'Fantastic thing, the modern young woman. So I think I can understand. There may have been more than mere caprice in it.' His eye met his friend's significantly. "'I suppose so.' said Robert quietly. Not even for Robert's benefit was he going to reveal any details of that scene on High Fell. Never mind, old fellow, I am content. And indeed, Fodemio, I should be content with anything that brought me nearer to her, were it but by the thousandth of an inch. Robert grasped his hand affectionately. Catherine, he called through the door, never mind the supper, let it burn. Flaxman brings news. Catherine listened to the story with amazement. Certainly her ways would never have been as her sister's. "'Are we supposed to know?' she asked, very naturally. "'She never forbade me to tell,' said Flaxman, smiling. "'I think, however, if I were you, I should say nothing about it—yet. I told her it was part of our bargain that she should explain my letters to Mrs. Laban. I gave her free leave to invent any fairy tale she pleased, but it was to be her invention, not mine.' Neither Robert nor Catherine were very well pleased, but there was something reassuring, as well as comic, in the stoicism with which Flaxman took his position. And clearly the matter must be left to manage itself. Next morning the weather had improved. Robert, his hand on Flaxman's arm, got down to the beach. Flaxman watched him critically, did not like some of his symptoms, but thought on the whole he must be recovering at the normal rate, considering how severe the attack had been. "'What do you think of him?' Catherine asked him next day, with all her soul in her eyes. They had left Robert established in a sunny nook, and were strolling on along the sands. "'I think you must get him home, call in a first-rate doctor, and keep him quiet,' said Flaxman. "'He will be all right presently.' "'How can we keep him quiet?' 
said Catherine, with a momentary despair in her fine, pale face. All day long and all night long he is thinking of his work. It is like something fiery burning the heart out of him. Flaxman felt the truth of the remark during the four days of calm autumn weather he spent with them before the return journey. Robert would talk to him for hours, not on the sands, with the grey infinity of sea before them, now pacing the bounds of their little room till fatigue made him drop heavily into his long chair, and the burden of it all was the religious future of the working class. He described the scene in the club, and brought out the dreams swarming in his mind, presented them for Flaxman's criticism, and dealing with them himself, with that startling mixture of acute common sense and eloquent passion, which had always made him so effective as an initiator. Flaxman listened dubiously at first, as he generally listened to Ellesmere, and then was carried away, not by the beliefs, but by the man. He found his pleasure in dallying with the magnificent possibility of the church. Doubt with him applied to all propositions, whether positive or negative. And he had the dislike of the aristocrat and the cosmopolitan for the privilegialisms of religious dissent. Political dissent, or social reform, was another matter. Since the Revolution, every generous child of the century had been open to the fascination of political or social utopias. But religion? What? What is truth? Why not let the old things alone? However, it was through the social passion, once so real in him and still living, in spite of disillusion and self-mockery, that Robert caught him, had in fact been slowly gaining possession of him all these months. Well, said Flaxman one day, suppose I grant you that Christianity of the old sort shows strong signs of exhaustion, even in England, and in spite of the church expansion we hear so much about. And suppose I believe with you that things will go badly without religion. What then? Who can have a religion for the asking? But who can have it without? Seek that ye may find. Experiment. Try new combinations. If a thing is going that humanity can't do without, and you and I believe it, what duty is more urgent for us than the effort to replace it? Flaxman shrugged his shoulders. What will you gain? A new sect? Possibly, but what we stand to gain is a new social bond, was the flashing answer. A new compelling force in man and in society. Can you deny that the world wants it? What are your economists and sociologists of the new type always pining for? Why, for that diminution of the self in man which is to enable the individual to see the world's ends clearly, and to care not only for his own, but for his neighbour's interest, which is to make the rich devote themselves to the poor, and the poor bear with the rich. If man only would, he could, you say, solve all the problems which oppress him. It is man's will which is eternally defective, eternally inadequate. Well, the great religions of the world are the stimulants by which the power at the root of things has worked upon this sluggish instrument of human destiny. Without religion you cannot make the will equal to its tasks. Our present religion fails us. We must, we will, have another. He rose and began to pace along the sands, now gently glowing in the warm September evening, Flaxman beside him. A new religion! Of all words, the most tremendous! Flaxman pitifully weighed against it the fraction of force fretting and surging in the thin elastic frame beside him. He knew well, however, few better, that the outburst was not a mere dream and emptiness, 
There was experience behind it, a burning, driving experience of actual fact. Presently, Robert said, with a change of tone, I must have that whole block of warehouses, Flaxman. Must you? said Flaxman, relieved by the drop from speculation to the practical. Why? Look here. And sitting down again on a sand hill overgrown with wild grasses and mats of sea thistle, the poor, pale reformer began to draw out the details of his scheme on its material side. Three floors of rooms brightly furnished, well lit, and warmed. A large hall for the Sunday lectures, concerts, entertainments, and storytelling. Rooms for the boys' club, two rooms for women and girls, reached by a separate entrance. A library and reading room open to both sexes, well stored with books, and made beautiful by pictures. Three or four smaller rooms to serve as committee rooms, and for the purposes of the Naturalist Club, which had been started in May on the Muirwall plan. And, if possible, a gymnasium. Money, he said, drawing up with a laugh in mid-career. <laughs> There's the rub, of course. But I shall manage it. To judge from the past, Flaxman thought it extremely likely that he would. He studied the cabalistic lines Ellesmere's stick had made in the sand for a minute or two. Then he said dryly, I will take the first expense, and draw me afterwards up to five hundred a year for the first four years. Robert turned upon him and grasped his hand. I do not thank you, he said quietly, after a moment's pause. The work itself will do that. Again they strolled on, talking, plunging into details, till Flaxman's pulse beat as fast as Robert's. So full of infectious hope and energy was the whole being of the man before him. "'I can take in the women and girls now,' Robert said once. "'Catherine has promised to superintend it all.' Then suddenly something struck the mobile mind, and he stood an instant looking at his companion. It was the first time he had mentioned Catherine's name in connection with the North R. work. Flaxman could not mistake the emotion, the unspoken thanks in those eyes. He turned away, nervously knocking the ashes off his cigar. But the two men understood each other. End of Book 7, Chapter 48